Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word. We've all heard sermons on what we must do to be saved. We've heard the gospel message, we obeyed, and now we're done, right? This lesson, presented to the Franklin Congregation on December 28, 2008, asks the question a little bit differently. Open up your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, and get ready to ask, Now that I am a Christian, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? We all know the answer to that question, right? You throw the verses out there. We know that according to Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We know that Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. We know that Acts 2.38 says that repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so each and every one of us can quote the five-finger plan that we've heard all our lives, that if we want to be saved, we want to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. We know that that's there. Is that the end? We've done this, and now we're saved, and it's just over, and now we can go on our merry way? Actually, that's not the case. I want us to ask this question again, but I want to put a little twist on it. I'd like for us to ask, now that I am a Christian, what must I do to be saved? You see, the things that we just listed are absolutely important. If we want to be children of God, those are the things that the Scripture demonstrates we must do in order to enter the blood of Christ and have His blood cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. But now that we've become children of God, we're not allowed to just sit on our thumbs and just do whatever we want. If we want to be saved, we've got to follow God's plan. And I think there's a great verse in the Scripture that helps us understand the answer to this question. Now that I am a Christian, what must I do to be saved? I'd like to direct your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Peter provides a plan for us that will help us go to heaven. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. The Scripture goes on to say, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd like for us to take a look at this list of things and qualities that Peter provides for us and says, this is, if you do these things, if you increase in these things, if you grow in these things, then there is guaranteed for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord. As we get into that, there's two things that I want to point out here. Number one, really just to be honest with you, the reason why I'm doing this lesson is because I know we're about to enter a new year. And as we're thinking about that new year and as we're thinking about our plans for that new year, some of us are, are thinking about how we're going to grow, where we should have grown, and where we want to improve. I want to lay this out for you as a plan for growth in 2009. Here are the qualities 
the virtues upon which we need to be basing our lives, that we need to be building and growing. As we're going to find out, the point of this lesson is not, you better be perfect in this by tomorrow. It's just the fact that we need to be growing in these qualities if we want that entrance into the kingdom. The second thing that I want to point out to you is that when I ask this question, now that I'm a Christian, what must I do to be saved? I don't mean that to say that here's a checklist of things to earn your salvation. You just can't do that. It's not an issue of, I've got a, I've got a checklist faith and I've got a checklist virtue and I've got a checklist knowledge and if I do all those things good enough, then I'll get to go to heaven. That's not the point. Peter's point is that this is Christ's way. This is the way that works. If we want an entrance to the kingdom, we're just going to have to build our faith because if we don't build our faith, it's, it's not that we didn't earn it, it's not that we didn't do it well enough, it's just that faith is the way that works, virtue is the way that works, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. These are the keys to walking on Christ's narrow path. This is the way that works. And so as we share those, please, please don't think I'm trying to provide you a checklist of, of eight more things that you've got to do good enough to get to go to heaven. That's not the point at all. We're just trying to point out, here's the path. If you want to be on that path that goes to heaven, this is the, these are the guideposts. This is the way it works. Before we get into looking at each of these, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty and glorious God in heaven, we praise your name because you are indeed awesome and powerful. And we're thankful that you have provided this path for us, that you have lit the way before our feet so that we might know how to walk that path straight into your eternal kingdom. Help us, Father, to grow in these qualities. Help us to lift each other up in these qualities. Forgive us where we've fallen short in these qualities. We've sinned even this week, Father, and in the past days, and we're thankful that you forgive us through the blood of your Son, Jesus. And We'd ask that you would lift us up and help us to grow and to overcome the tempter. Deliver us from evil. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son, we offer this prayer. Amen. The very first thing, obviously, is faith. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Faith is the foundation, if you will. Obviously, as we already read back in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, faith is something we already have. Otherwise, we couldn't be children of God. And faith is one of the things that brings us into the family of God. But what I want you to notice here in Second Peter is that this faith is not just some kind of attitude. I want you to notice a couple things. That in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing. You don't have to have all faith in order to become a child of God. But what we need to understand is it's not just I had enough faith to get baptized and so now I'm saved and everything's okay. What we need to understand is that this faith is supposed to be increasing. We don't just get to say I had faith, now I'm saved, I'm done. I have faith and I'm growing in faith. As the man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But I also want you to notice verse 10. In verse 10 it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. This is something at which we need to be diligent. In other passages, this word is translated eager or endeavor or strive. So faith is something at which we have to work. It's not just something accidental. It's not just whatever comes naturally. If we're going to have this kind of saving faith that is a growing faith, we're going to have to be working at our faith. But I also want you to notice in verse 10 that not only does it say we need to be diligent, but notice it says that these are practices. All of these qualities, it says practice these qualities. So the faith that it's talking about here is something that we need to be practicing. And I think when we talk about the idea of 
practicing faith. That means we need to practice the things that will increase our faith. For instance, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, the Scripture there says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. If we're going to practice our faith, we practice the things that increase our faith. We're going to be practicing in Bible study and reading the Word. But not only does it mean practicing the things that will increase our faith, it means practicing the things that our faith teaches us. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul talked about his apostleship. He said that he had received grace through Jesus Christ and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Do you see that? Faith has obedience that goes along with it. And so when we talk about practicing our faith, we're talking about increasing our obedience to that faith. I saw a great, a great definition of obedience this week. Obedience is the idea of honoring, or excuse me, trusting those who lead us by honoring them and doing what they say. That's what obedience is. Do we trust God? Do we believe God enough to just do what He says? And so as we're growing this year, we need to work on growing in our practice of faith. But Peter said that we don't stop there. It's not just I've had faith and now everything's good. I need to supplement my faith with virtue. Or moral excellence, some translations say. Virtue is the idea of doing what is right just because it is the right thing to do. We see a great example or great description of virtue in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. We're going to read a lengthy passage here. This is Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. The passage there says, Now this I say, and testify on the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What an amazing picture of virtue, of doing the right thing because it is the right thing to do. Putting off that old self that was corrupt because of its deceitful desires and being renewed in the mind to put on the new self that follows after the will of God as revealed by the Holy Spirit. We've actually already started this path of virtue. Having believed in Jesus as the Christ, if we're a child of God, we completed that faith, made that faith perfect by submitting to what it said. You'll notice in James chapter 2, 
James chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, it says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We see this beginning of virtue as we submitted to Jesus Christ in baptism. We were doing the right thing because it was the right thing to do, and that completed that faith so that we might become children of God. But now we've got to grow in that, continuing on in that path of virtue, having believed the will of Jesus Christ and continuing to live in it. And we remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which explains to us how to learn the virtuous path. It says there, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent Equipped for every good work. If we want to be equipped for every good work, we've got to be in the Word. That's where we're going to learn about righteousness and virtue. If we want that entrance into that eternal kingdom, we're going to be working on virtue. Now that I'm a Christian, if I want to be saved, I don't just sit on my hands and just do what I want. I walk in the path that God recreated me in order to walk in. I need to walk in the path of virtue. But interestingly, Peter goes on. It's not just faith and obedience. He then continues and said, I need to supplement my faith and virtue with knowledge. We know that under the Old Covenant, God said through Hosea in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Remember that Jesus, when He talked to the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 29, He said, you're wrong. You do err, some translations say, because you do not know the Scriptures. And of course, we remember Jesus' promise in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Knowledge is important. When we don't have the knowledge, we're going to be destroyed. But when we do have the knowledge of truth in Jesus Christ, that is what will set us free. We need to have knowledge. Do you notice the cycle that's beginning to form here? And didn't we have to have a little bit of knowledge to have faith to begin with? I mean, as Paul said in Romans chapter 10, unless we had heard of Jesus, we couldn't have believed in Him, we had to have some knowledge. That knowledge produced faith. That faith produced virtue. But as we wanted to grow in virtue, we had to study the Word. Remember, that produced more knowledge, which produces more faith, which produces more virtue. You see the cycle taking place here? And it is a cycle. And all of these characteristics that we're looking at, they all go together. When we work on one, we're going to work on all of them. It's going to improve them all. If we want to be saved, we need to increase our knowledge. But it's not just an idea of knowing things. It's the idea of having these things hidden in our hearts so that they impact our lives. Psalm 119, verse 11. Psalm 119 and verse 11. There the psalmist said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the purpose for knowledge. Knowledge is not just to be able to, to have Bible trivia contests and win. It's not just so that we can point out where everybody might be wrong and we're right. The reason for Bible knowledge is so that we can store up God's Word in our heart so that we can avoid sin. See that? And there's the virtue. See how all of it ties together? In fact, Jesus stands out as the great example for us in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came directly to attempt to tempt Jesus. Three times Jesus said, It is written. 
And we want to be able to save that in our lives. You, you see the point here? The issue is not that, boy, I've got to gain enough knowledge to earn my way into heaven. The fact is, if I don't have the knowledge when Satan attacks me, I'm going to fall. The point is, this is the path that works. And if I want to be on the right path, I'm going to have to grow in knowledge. Getting that Word stored up in my heart so that when Satan attacks, I can say, it is written and overcome. Peter says, if we want that entrance into the eternal kingdom guaranteed to us, we've got to grow in knowledge. But it doesn't stop there. He points out another quality. He says we need self-control. Self-control. This ties in with the virtue. This ties in with doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Self-control is really the idea of stringing moments of virtue together. Self-control is the recognition that I am where I am today because of the choices I made yesterday and I'll be where I'll be tomorrow because of the choices that I'm making today. Self-control is about responsibility and accountability. It's about recognizing that I am the reason that I've ended up in sin and as messed up spiritually as I am. And I've got to bring that under control. James, I want to add something in here. If you get the outline, this is not here. I was studying this some more last night. And it just made me think, you know, commonly the idea of when we say self-control, we almost get that idea that, that self is where that power of control resides. But I don't think that's really the case. In James chapter 1 and verse 13, it talks about what happens with self. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The idea of self-control is not so much that I make myself powerful enough to be in control. It's the fact that I have a self that causes problems and I need to get him under control. Under God's control. So when we talk about having self-control, what we really need to be talking about is bringing self under God's control. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 points out that we need to trust God and lean not on our own understanding. The point is that if I'm going to control this self that's been causing all these problems, I just need to surrender myself to God and do His will, trusting Him when He says this is the way that it works. I think about Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. God has a way for us, but it's not an easy way. It's a hard and difficult way. I just need to trust God that His way, though it's hard and difficult, is the right way. And I need to bring myself under God's control. We need to work on that. If we want that entrance into the eternal kingdom guaranteed for us, instead of lifting ourselves up as the power of control, we need to be controlling ourselves by surrendering to God. Having temperance, as some translations translate this word. Temperance and self-control. But it's not just self-control. He adds steadfastness. Or your translation may say patience or perseverance. The idea of steadfastness 
is we had virtue, self-control is stringing moments of virtue together. Steadfastness is stringing moments of virtue together even in the face of hardship and opposition. If your translation says patience, that, that may give you a little bit of a wrong view of this passage. Because when I think about patience, I think about being stuck in the Walmart line or, or being in traffic and having to wait for it to break free. And we talk about patience being a virtue. And usually that phrase comes from, like this passage, where it talks about patience. But that's really not the patience that the Scripture speaks of. When it talks about Christians being patient, it means persevering. It means that hardship is coming against us. Opposition is coming against us. But we decide to do God's will anyway. We submit to the control of God anyway. James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 uses the word patient in this way. It says in James 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He tells us to be patient until the end. Persevere. Remain steadfast. No matter what happens, establish our hearts in the Lord, because He's coming. And we need to still be with Him when He returns. The idea of steadfastness and, and, and facing this means the fact that we're going to sacrifice some things in this life. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see Moses and his picture of patience. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 25, it talks about Moses and how he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He sacrificed some of the fleeting pleasures of this life so that his heart, established with the Lord, would await the reward that the Lord was giving. So being steadfast is going to mean some sacrifice. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2 demonstrates that being steadfast means that we're going to have to avoid the distractions of this world. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're going to have to stand steadfast even when persecution comes. Staying with the Word of God, not willing to compromise it or push it aside just to have an easier life. If we want that entrance into the eternal kingdom, We've got to have steadfastness. As 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We're going to have to fight that fight. We're going to have to be steadfast in the face of the enemies that would turn us away from God if we want that eternal kingdom. But not just steadfastness, godliness. We became Christians because of our thoughts about God, because we feared God, because we loved God, because we wanted to honor God because of what He had done for us. As Christians, if we want that eternal kingdom, we need to grow in that godliness. 
The word translated here for godliness is a contraction of two words. The word you, E-U, which means good, and the word sebomai, which means reverence. Godliness is the idea of giving God good reverence, honoring Him, respecting Him. And let me ask you, what would be the number one way to honor and respect somebody, to demonstrate that we trust them and believe them? Don't we often say that the sincerest form of flattery is imitation? The sincerest form of honor is to imitate. And so as we offer this good reverence, we need to grow to be like God, to show our love for God by imitating Him. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Paul said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter quoted the passage from the Old Testament that said, Be holy as I am holy. We need to grow in our love and honor for God by growing in being like God. Striving to live this life the way He would live this life if He were us. Honoring God by being like Him. We need to love God because He loves us. God's love did not come just so we could just keep doing what we wanted. If we love God, let's, let's honor Him by being like Him. He goes on, though, to say brotherly affection. Talk about our relationship with God. Now Peter talks about our relationship with one another. The reality is if we want that entrance into the eternal kingdom, we're going to have to realize that, that we've got to do this together. It's not, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do this on my own and you're not going to be able to do it on your own either. We've got to grow in brotherly affection. First John chapter 1 and verse 7 points out that when we entered this relationship with Christ, we entered a relationship with other people as well. First John verse 1 and 7, verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Becoming a child of God does not just mean having a relationship with God. It means having a relationship with all of God's other children as well. And we need to grow in this affection for one another. This word also is a contraction of two words. One meaning friend, the other meaning brother. The idea that I get from it is that we've got to learn to be friends with our brothers. Some of us have siblings in our families, in our physical families. Do you get to choose your siblings? Sometimes you wish you had different siblings, didn't you? Or maybe no siblings at all. But you don't get to choose that. And, and the same is true in, our, in the family of God. I don't get to choose who my brothers and sisters are in the family of God. Those who walk in the light are my brothers and sisters, whether I want them to be or not. What Peter is pointing out here is that I've got to learn to be friends with the brothers and sisters that I have. We become friends with people because of similarities, usually. They like the same things. They work the same place. They live in the same area. They're interested in, in similar things, maybe a similar life circumstance. Let me ask you. What greater similarity could we have with anybody? Despite the possible differences there, what greater similarity could we have with anybody than the similarity of having faith in Jesus Christ and Him having cleansed us of our sins and growing in these things? That's a similarity that we ought to be able to base our relationships on. And we need to choose to be friends with our brethren. 
as Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 says. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We've got to learn to love each other. Friends, friends get along even through tough times. When, when bad things happen, friends come together and work through it. They talk it out and they grow. And that's what we need to do as brothers and sisters. We need to learn to have that affection for one another. Not the arrogance that says, I'm going to put all my brethren in their place. Not the, the preeminence that says, I'm going to rise above my brethren. We need to have brotherly affection that learns how to love and get along with our brethren so that we can grow in Christ. But then Peter caps it all off. Combining these last two terms and then adding to it. We've got our relationship with God. We've got our relationship with one another. And then he caps it off with perhaps the most difficult part of this entire list. He just says love. Talked about loving God. Talked about loving one another. This brings in those two things. Brings them together. And then brings in everyone else. Love. In Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, one of the lawyers asked Jesus about the greatest of the laws. You remember the response in Luke chapter 10? Jesus turned it back to him and said, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered in Luke 10:27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Notice Jesus' response. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. Remember, he had asked about eternal life. So it's not surprising to find love in this list here that helps us have eternal life. Jesus said that. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll live. You'll have eternal life. Guaranteed. But then Jesus went on because the lawyer wishing to justify himself said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? We've talked about this before. We know the story that comes here. The parable of the Samaritan who took care of the Jew, as Jesus described love and who we are to love, He didn't pick friends, He picked enemies. And said, that's the neighbor. We're supposed to love all. In Matthew chapter 5, we see our great example in love, and that's God. In Matthew 5 and verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we grow in this love, we become more like God. Remember, that's godliness, isn't it? Imitating God, honoring Him by being like Him. He's our example in love. And we need to grow in this. Of course, the passage to which we turn most often when it comes to love is 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4, Paul defined love for us, or defined the attributes of love. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We've talked about the great exercise with this passage, replacing the word love with your name. 
Edwin is patient and kind. Edwin does not envy or boast. Edwin is not arrogant or rude. Add to that somebody else's name. Edwin is patient and kind to Jimmy. Edwin does not envy or boast with Jonathan. Is not arrogant or rude to Phil. I know I have to work on that one, Phil. Fit in some names of some enemies. And I don't know who your enemies are. Put your name first. Edwin is patient and kind with, and then think of somebody who's been an enemy. Put their name there. Can you do that? That's what we need to be working on. That's where we need to be growing. Love. Peter says, if we want the entrance to the eternal kingdom, this is where we have to grow. Again, not because, boy, I've got to be good enough at these things to earn my way into heaven. That's not going to work. You're not ever going to be that good at it. Good enough to earn your way. You're not, not good enough to earn. But rather, this is just the path that works. Doing these things is what keeps us on God's path of righteousness. And there in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 11, remember this promise. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that I'm a Christian, what must I do to be saved? I need to increase my faith. I need to supplement my faith with virtue. And I need to supplement my virtue with knowledge. And I need to supplement my knowledge with self-control. And I need to supplement my self-control with steadfastness. And I need to supplement my steadfastness with godliness. And supplement my godliness with brotherly affection. And supplement my brotherly affection with love. Because if these things are ours and increasing, we'll enter the kingdom. Not if these things are yours and perfect. Catch that. But if these things are yours and increasing, you'll enter the kingdom. In the year to come, look at this as a plan of growth. And let's walk on the path with Jesus together. I hope this lesson edified you. More importantly, I hope it glorified God. Let's remember what we learned. If we want to be saved now that we're Christians, we must grow in faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. If you have any questions, spiritual needs, or prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. Please join us for one of our classes or assemblies. You can find directions and meeting times on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.